Uh, my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors. And uh, once again, if you're new with us, if this is one of your first times here, uh, we just want to welcome you and uh, let you know we're really, really glad uh, that you're here. Uh, well, last week we, we started a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bible, make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter And if you're new and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give one to you. Uh, on this table back over here, there's some hardback black ones. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and grab one of those and keep it. That's our gift to you as uh, a church. But 1 Corinthians 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, one of the, I think probably the most important realities of growing up and growing into adulthood is learning how to live together uh, with other people. Uh, some of us learned this lesson a little bit earlier than others. Some of us, myself included, are still learning this. Uh, but as you get older, uh, you increasingly learn that the world does not revolve around you and that people uh, don't always think the same way that you do and act the same way that you do uh, and have the same preferences that you do. And so one of the kind of most important realities of growing up is learning how to live together and have relationships with people who don't share all of the same preferences uh, and behaviors and all of those things. Uh, that you do, and this uh, especially gets ramped up when you start living with somebody else, whether that's a spouse uh, or a roommate, because you quickly find out uh, that you've got some disagreements about how to best live together and about how things uh, should be done. For example, of like, which way should the toilet paper go on the handle, uh, which I'll just go ahead and settle that for you, like, it should go towards you. Uh, you shouldn't have to do like an army crawl with your hand up the wall to try to get the toilet paper off of the roll, like... We're not savages here. You shouldn't have to do that. Uh, other things like, hey, when or if and how loud you should play music in the house, uh, when the dishes are going to get done, how high they can get stacked up before they need to get done, uh, who's going to do them, uh, how much general kind of mess you're comfortable with in the house, and all sorts of these other kind of small disagreements are, are just part of what it looks like to learn to live together uh, with somebody else. Uh, and, and the same thing is true here in the church. Because if the church is a family, uh, and it is, that, that means we're going to have some disagreements as we learn uh, to live together as a family, together here in the church. But unfortunately, sometimes those disagreements amplify into divisions, where we hold our preferences and our way of doing things and what we think is best uh, so tightly that we start to divide from others here in the church and think we're better than others here in the church and kind of mark ourselves out from them and won't have fellowship with them Anymore, And so this morning in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to address some disagreements in the church at Corinth, some disagreements that have amplified uh, into becoming divisions where people in the church of Corinth have marked themselves out from one another and are refusing to fellowship with one another uh, anymore. And the good news is that this is mostly just going to be kind of a history lesson on the church at Corinth this morning uh, because there's nothing really big that divides us today as a church, right? Nothing that we really disagree about and fight over. Uh, if you miss that, that's what the kids call a joke. Uh, over the past few years, I don't know if this is actually the case, but it definitely feels like the past two years, uh, the church in America is more divided than it has been in a long, long time. Like the church in America is incredibly divided by all sorts of different things right now, and we as a local church here at Veritas uh, are not immune to that. Uh, but the good news is that God has a word for us this morning to address our division and our disunity. Uh, through the Apostle Paul, real simply, he's going to call us back to unity around the gospel, unity in 
Jesus. In fact, if I could sum up the passage in a sentence, I think that's what Paul is calling us towards uh, this morning, real simply, that we are called to be unified around Jesus. Uh, And so let's look at this passage together and see why we're supposed to be unified and how God empowers us uh, and equips us to do that. And so let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 10 and read through verse 17. The very word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." So three things I think we see in this passage. We see that we are called to unity, we see what keeps us from unity, and then where we find the power for unity. And so first, we are called to unity because Paul appeals to us here in verse 10 to be unified, to be united in the same mind and in uh, the same judgment. And we, we hit on this a little bit last week, but this is really the theme of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. Like the Corinthian church is divided by all of these different things, and Paul is just going to keep calling them back to unity in the gospel, unity around Jesus. And listen, this is crucially important for us as well. Uh, in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father that his church would be one, just as he and the Father are one. When we confess the Nicene Creed together as a church, like we just did this morning, uh, we confess that we believe the church is one, holy, universal, and apostolic. Like we believe that the church should be one, should be unified like Jesus prayed for. And so this really isn't kind of an optional thing, a, a take it or leave it sort of thing. Uh, It is crucially important that we embody the unity that Jesus died for. Like Jesus died and rose from the grave so that his church would be one, so that they would be unified in him. Uh, But if we are going to be unified, it's really important that we understand what that means. Uh, And the good news is that Paul tells us, look back again at verse 10, he tells us that we are to be unified in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now what that doesn't mean is that we all agree on everything. Uh, What it means is that we're unified in the same mind and same judgment about the gospel. Uh, Paul's going to tell us in chapter 2 that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 15, he's going to remind us that the gospel is of first importance, and we see it here in verse 17, and he's going to expand on it next week that the gospel is the power and the wisdom of God. And so to be united in the same mind, in the same judgment, is to be united both in what the gospel is and in the gospel's importance in our church, that it should have first place, that Jesus should be most important in the church. And it is crucially important that we understand this, because if we don't understand this, we're going to get off track and go after the wrong things in our pursuit of unity. Uh, and so I want to talk through a couple things that unity is not. Unity is not uniformity, 
uh, or relativity. And so one, unity is not uniformity, where we all act the same and think the same and vote the same and talk the same and dress the same and agree together on everything. Uh, Like, in many ways, this is what we're always going to tend towards, though. We're always going to drift back towards uniformity if we don't fight against it, because this is just so much easier. It's so much easier to be in a place where everyone is just like you, but I promise you, you don't want that. You see, because everyone is a sinner, and, and therefore every church is made up of sinners, uh, every church is going to have problems. You don't, there's no such thing as a problem-free church. It does not exist. And, and so the question is, what sort of problems do we want to have? Uh, Tim Keller talks about the difference between dead problems and, and living problems. Living problems happen when we are reaching people across political lines, and so we've got to figure out how to live together with those disagreements, and we're reaching people across cultural lines, and so we've got to figure out how to live with those, and we're reaching people uh, in different socioeconomic classes, and so we've got to learn how to live together as richer and poorer, something we want to grow in, and we're reaching people across different ages, something else we want to grow in, and so we've got to learn how to live together in different seasons of life, and we're reaching lost people who up to that point have been acting like lost people, and hopefully you realize that when someone gets saved and comes to faith in Jesus, they don't instantly figure everything out. Uh, No, most of the time they just realize that they were blind, uh, and now they see, and that Jesus has saved them. And beyond that, there's going to be a whole lot of messes to clean up, because they're spiritual babies who have just been given new life in Jesus. And what do babies do? They make messes. They blow out their diapers. And so, yes, we want everyone here in the church to grow into spiritual maturity, uh, but if everyone here is spiritually mature, it's a sign that we aren't reaching people anymore, uh, and it's a sign that we probably aren't as spiritually mature as we might like to think that we are. And so if we're really reaching lost people and reaching across lines like Jesus calls us to, there's always going to be some messes and some blown out diapers spiritually to clean up here in the church. And listen, we want that. Like, like parents, I'll just tell you, I want us to be reaching people to the point where you have to warn your kids before you come to church on Sunday. Like kids, hey, you might see or hear some things today at church from people that you don't normally see or hear around the house. And, and hey, that's okay. Like we're just learning what it means to follow Jesus. People are new here. Like, I, I, I'll tell you, I love it when someone drops an F-bomb or a few choice words during prayer time in community group, uh, because the vast majority of the time, uh, it's a sign that they're being honest about where they're at, and they're learning what it means to follow Jesus. I love it when someone in community group is like, hey, can you teach me how to pray? I've never done this before. I love it when someone comes to faith in Jesus, and maybe the rest of their life is on fire, and they have no clue about any of that, but they love and want to follow Jesus, and they need and they want help with that, and we get to help them with that, and they begin to learn what it means to follow Jesus here. I had a church planner friend tell me at one point they were going through 1 Samuel, and somebody who had just become a Christian asked him when King Saul was going to turn into the Apostle Paul. Uh, He said at another time, uh, they were walking through Genesis in their small groups, and another person who had just become a new Christian said they really loved the book of 1 Genesis and wondered when they were going to start reading 2 Genesis. Like, having to answer those questions and dealing with those problems is so much better than having dead problems, because those aren't even problems. 
Like new Christians will learn that King Saul doesn't turn into the Apostle Paul and that there isn't a book of second Genesis in the Bible. And, and messes that spiritual babies make, those can get cleaned up. Jesus will renew and he will change people who are in broken situations. Like we want to have those things, having to answer some of those beginning questions and deal with those issues and try to figure out how to walk in that uh, is so much better than having dead problems because that's a sign that there's new life here. It's so much better than having dead problems where everyone acts the same and talks the same and thinks the same and agrees together on everything. Like, that's not a sign of health. That's a sign that we're a country club and not a church and that we're dying and we're not reaching anybody. And so we want mess. Like, Veritas always needs to be a place that's a little bit grungy because having living problems is so much better than having dead problems. Like, we want to have to wrestle through, like, okay, these people love Jesus and they disagree about, like, everything else. How do we get them to live together? Uh, how do we help this person follow Jesus who's coming out of this really broken situation here? Because that puts the power of Jesus on display, how he saves people and he transforms diverse people and he makes them one in himself. And, and so unity, it's not uniformity. And then two, unity is also not relativity. Like it's, it's not just us kind of lowering everything down to the lowest common denominator here. Like, yes, the gospel is radically inclusive. Anyone can get in on Jesus. All you need is your need. But at the same time, it's radically exclusive because you have to come through Jesus. And so this is not unity for the sake of unity. It's unity in Jesus. And so it's not, hey, whoever shows up here on a Sunday, you know, we're one in Jesus and we hold hands and we sing friends are friends forever and kumbaya around the campfire. And it's not whatever we believe goes, like I've got my truth and you've got your truth, and who's to really say whose truth is right and better? Like, it's not that. Our faith really does have some content that is orthodox, like right belief about who the triune God is, about who Jesus is, about what the gospel is that really isn't negotiable. And beyond that, uh, there's some implications of the gospel that we want people to grow to believe as they grow as followers of Jesus. I mean, even here in this letter where Paul is telling us, be unified around Jesus, keep him number one and central in the church, uh, he's also going to go on in this letter to lay out some definitive teaching on areas like marriage and singleness and sexuality and idolatry and Christian freedom and, and the resurrection. And so this is not relativity. It's not whatever goes. It's unity in Jesus. We unify around the gospel that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior who has lived, died, and rose in our place to forgive us of our sins, unite us to himself, and make us right with God forever. And we unite around the gospel's importance that it's going to stay number one here in the church and then from that unity in Jesus and his gospel, we give people the space to learn to believe other aspects of Christian teaching as they grow, and we give people the space to disagree about open-handed issues while still being in unity and fellowship with one another here in the church. And so from that call to unity, Paul moves next in this passage to describe a few things uh, that, that keep us from unity, and he names two things in particular— uh, one, attaching ourselves to identity markers other than Jesus, and then two, valuing those things 
uh, more than Jesus. Look at verse 11 and 12 again with me. He says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so someone from Chloe's people, we don't know if it was one of her employees or one of her family members, comes to Paul and tells him what's going on at the church in Corinth. And it seems like what's happening here uh, is that the people in the church at Corinth have started dividing themselves based on their favorite teacher. And so some people are saying, I follow Paul. You know, I like theology like Paul does. He gets it right. And some people are saying, I follow Apollos. Uh, the book of Acts tell us, tells us that Apollos could shuck the corn. Uh, that's not how it's translated, but that is what it's saying. Uh, and so I imagine that there's people in the church at Corinth that like, man, I love listening to Apollos preach. He is my guy. He is such a better preacher than Paul. Paul is such a nerd. Uh, and then other people are like, I follow Cephas, which is uh, the Apostle Peter's Aramaic name. And so I imagine this is kind of a status symbol, like I'm connected to Peter. I follow Peter. I'm, where, I'm connected to where it all began in the church in Jerusalem uh, and then you've got some really super spiritual people who are like, yeah, I don't concern myself with any of that. I just follow Christ. Just me and Jesus and my Bible, that's all that I need. Now, uh, it, it's a good thing to follow Jesus. We all want to do that, but it seems like what these people are doing here is kind of Jesus juking everybody else and acting like they're better than everyone else and kind of above it all, when really they may be the most prideful of any of these groups because they're acting like they don't need anybody else in the church. And and you've met this person if you've been in church for any length of time. And if you've been in church for a length of time and you haven't met this person, you might be this person. Um, but, but what's going on here, what seems to be going on here, is that these people have started to uh, attach themselves to one of these teachers and have made them sort of an identity marker, a way to define themselves over against others and separate themselves uh, from other people here in the same church. And maybe at first read, that doesn't sound like it's something that would tempt us or affect us today, but man, it definitely does. I think this is one of the easiest temptations for us to fall into, to attach ourselves to a person or to a tribe and start to identify with that person or tribe just as much as or, or more than Jesus. Like the names have just changed. If Paul was writing to us today, he would easily be able to say about many of us, like you guys say, yeah, I follow Piper, or I follow MacArthur, or I follow Keller, or I follow Chandler, or I follow Wilkin, or I follow Bauckham, or I follow Jackie Hill Perry, or I follow the Bible Project, or I follow whatever your favorite podcast is. And, and listen, there's a lot of different reasons that we do this. For some of us, uh, we're really insecure about our own relationship with Jesus and our, our security and our acceptance in him. And so we start to look to other people who do seem to have that security, uh, who seem like they're so confident in their relationship with Jesus, and we try to kind of vicariously live through them and attach ourselves to them because maybe if we do that well enough, we can get some of that security and confidence for ourselves. Others of us are just really bored with our own lives. Like, we, we don't have this real deep sense of meaning and purpose, and, and so once again, we try to look for somebody who seems like they do, uh, and, and we attach ourselves to them and try to live vicariously through them, because man, it looks like they've got just the perfect family, they're getting all these opportunities with their job, uh, they have, seem to have just such a deep walk with Jesus, they're getting to enjoy and experience everything that you're not, but you want to be, and so maybe if you attach yourself to them and become a follower of them, Maybe you can get some of that 
for yourself and start to feel a, a deeper sense of purpose. But I think for most of us, I think the reason that we do this is because we want someone to tell us that we're right. Like we want to be confirmed in our knowledge that we really do have the truth. And so we'll start to look for someone that we feel like has the answers and can give us the answers, and maybe if we just apply ourselves to their teachings well enough, then we'll be confident that we have knowledge and that we're in the right as well. And listen, just looking to other people for teaching is not wrong. In fact, actually the Bible encourages it. Ephesians 4 says that teachers are God's gift to his church to equip us for the work of ministry. And it's not wrong to have teachers that you favor and that you enjoy and that have benefited you more than others. I'm sure you know if you've been here for any length of time at all uh, who mine are because I'm constantly quoting Tim Keller and St. Augustine in sermons. Right? Like it's, it's not wrong to have those uh, what, what happens and where it gets off track is when this becomes kind of the end-all, be-all, where you look to this person for every sort of answer, and, and you just think they're right about everything, and you can never critique them because any critique of them would be a critique of you, and, and if they're wrong, you're wrong because you so completely attach yourself to them. But, but I think what, what even more than that, what Paul is addressing here and what quickly begins to happen is we start to wear this attachment to these tribes or to these people uh, as sort of an identity marker, as something that defines us, that we can compare ourselves to others in the church in and, and pridefully assert our superiority to them. And so we start to think, you know, I'm connected over here, so I know the truth. I know my Bible. We've got it right. We're better than you. And you start pridefully uh, asserting yourself over people, over people here in the church thinking, hey, you don't know the Bible like we do. You don't know theology like we do. You're not reaching people like we are. You're not as serious about Jesus as we are. You're not as committed to this cause as we are or whatever it is. And we, we start to wear this as a badge that we can use to assert ourselves over others and and kind of comfort ourselves about how much better we are than others. And that prideful superiority leads us to the second thing that Paul says keeps us from unity here, is which we start to value those things more than Jesus. Uh, because he starts to ask some rhetorical questions in verse 13 to show us just how absurd it is when we do this. When he says, is Christ divided, the answer is, of course, no, he's not. But we're presenting him this way when we divide from one another over petty issues here in the church. And then he says, was Paul crucified for you? Once again, no, of course not. That's absurd. And then he talks about baptism. He says, hey, guys, were you baptized in my name? And once again, no, of course not. To be when we are baptized, we are baptized into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And to be baptized into their name is to declare allegiance to them. Like when we baptize this morning, we are declaring that God has saved these people, that they belong to him now, and that they are going to follow Jesus. And Paul, so Paul's saying, hey, you didn't declare allegiance to me when you got into this thing. You declared allegiance to Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here with all of this talk about baptism, he's saying, hey, you're putting way too much weight into these things and these other teachers and people. Like, I didn't die for you, and you weren't baptized in my name. You didn't declare allegiance to me, and so it's foolish to elevate these things to the point of making these things part of your identity and how you define yourself and how you compare yourself to others in the church. 
And then listen, we do this too all the time. So often we take kind of an open-handed issue, whatever our kind of pet theological issue or doctrine is, and elevate it to a point of being non-negotiable for fellowship here in the church and as a way to boast over others. We do this all the time, but I'll just give you an example. So many of us do this with Calvinism. It's why the term cage-stage Calvinism even got invented. If you're not familiar with that term, that's okay. Uh, Cage-stage Calvinism just refers to somebody who gets, who begins to believe the doctrines of Calvinism and gets so hopped up on them that you have to lock them in a cage until they can talk about something other than election and predestination. Uh, and the irony is that these theological doctrines that should make us so humble, that, that the faith that you had to believe in Jesus, that even that was a gift from God, that's not something you contributed on your own, and that God chose you before the foundation of the world, not because you had done anything or you were going to choose him, but completely because of his grace, like doctrines that should make us so humble, the irony is that instead some of us become so prideful and obnoxious and we look down our nose at other people in the church who don't believe it like we do yet or don't know the Bible as well as we do yet or just haven't figured it out like we do yet and we make our Calvinism more important than Jesus. But it's not just Calvinism. We do this with all sorts of other issues as well. Uh, Every time I teach a partnership class here, a membership class here, and we talk through open and closed-handed issues, uh, closed-handed issues being what you have to believe as a follower of Jesus, to be a a partner and a member here uh, at the church, and then open-handed issues, things that are important, but that we're free to disagree on and still be in fellowship together here in the church, I always try to mention that the hardest thing for us to do, myself included, uh, is to keep open-handed issues open-handed. And because we all love to just take our pet theological doctrine or issue, what we're really passionate about, and elevate that to the level of non-negotiable if we're going to be in fellowship with other people here. And so our fellowship with others stops being centered around the gospel, and it becomes the gospel plus my theological system, or the gospel plus my stance on social justice, or the gospel plus my belief about gender roles, or the gospel plus my belief about where kids should go to school and how they should be parented, or the gospel plus my pet issue. Like, whenever we do that, whenever we elevate these things to the level of non-negotiable for fellowship here in the church, we've made those things more important than Jesus. And and Paul gives us some really helpful questions to help us get ourselves out of that. Uh, Whatever your pet issue or theological doctrine is, whatever you want to use to divide from other people with, you need to ask yourself, did it die for you? Did it rise from the dead to conquer your sins? Can it bring you back into right relationship and fellowship with God? If it didn't and it can't, then it's probably not worth dividing over and and boasting over people here in the same church who believe in the same Jesus you do with. It's not worth it uh, to do that and and to walk in this. Like, listen, if you find more unity with your chosen tribe of people than with people here at Veritas, if you wish that you could be in a church with people that believe all the same things you do and see it just the way that you do, that's not family family. That's an echo chamber. Like we've got to do the hard work of learning to live together as family in Jesus in the midst of our disagreements because that's what puts the power of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus on display to the world. 
And this is where Paul goes next in the passage when he tells us finally where we find the power for unity in verse 17. Look at it again with me. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so Paul believes the power uh, for unity is found in the gospel. Paul centers on the gospel because he thinks it's the answer to every problem that we face in the church. Uh, in, in chapter 2, he's going to tell us that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, but then he's going to go on throughout the letter to talk about a whole lot of different things other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and so what Paul means is that Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel is the answer to every problem and issue we face in the church. Like whatever our problem or issue is, we, we put it up to the lens of the gospel and we say, how does the gospel apply to this? How does the gospel speak to this? If the gospel were true, how would it change? what would it change about this? If the gospel is true, how should we respond in light of this? And this is what Paul is doing in verse 17 and what he's going to expand on and do more in depth uh, next week, the gospel is the answer to division. Because when you are resting in the gospel, the gospel message, it kills the spirit of pride and insecurity that leads us to divide from others and compare ourselves to others and boast over others here in the church. Because when you are resting in the good news that Jesus Christ came and lived in your place and died in your place and rose in your place to forgive your sins and make you right with God forever and that you didn't contribute any of that, that he did that all on his own, it kills the spirit of pride because what do you have left to boast in? Theological knowledge and correctness did not save you so you don't get to boast over others and look down your nose at others because of that. Religious activity didn't save you, so you don't get to boast in that either. Like Jesus did not save you because you were smarter than other people, or richer than other people, or better than other people, or more moral than other people, or a better parent than other people. He saved you because of His grace, His grace alone. And so centering ourselves on his grace can give us some grace for people here in the church who do share the same belief in Jesus but don't share the same belief in open-handed issues and resting in Jesus' grace can help us keep Jesus central and supreme and first place here in the church. And once again, this is just so crucial for us as a church. This is the theme of 1 Corinthians, and it's what we should give ourselves over to as a church. Because I think maybe the greatest opportunity, the thing that's going to open the most doors for evangelism today, uh, is us just modeling how to disagree with one another and still love each other and be family and united together in Jesus. Like, we have an incredible opportunity to show the world that Jesus really is this amazing, because everybody else hates each other right now, we have an incredible opportunity to model the difference that Jesus made. Literally, all you have to do to make a difference for Jesus right now is just love others and be charitable towards those that you disagree with. Like, that's it. It's so different from the way that everyone else is treating others and talking about others right now. And once again, this is why we uh, harp on some of the things that we do here and why we're so passionate about trying to keep the focus on Jesus here. 
Because whenever we divide over these petty, uh, non-essential issues and make those more important, we are telling the world that those things are more important than Jesus and that Jesus is not powerful enough to overcome that. Like when we do this, we are telling the world Jesus is not more important than where you stand on mask and vaccine. Jesus is not more important than who you decided to vote for. Jesus is not more important than where you decide to send your kids to school. Jesus is not more important than my pet issue. Listen, I don't want us to do that. Jesus is way too glorious for us to do that. He's way too glorious for us to try to shove him down into a box and try to force him to serve our pet issue. Like, I want people who are not believers to come to Veritas, to come to community groups, to come to gatherings, to come into contact with us and to see Jesus. Listen, I'm not saying it's easy. It's incredibly hard, but it is worth it. Because this is what Jesus died to bring. This is what his spirit is empowering us to do. And this is what we're called to walk in. And so let's walk in it. Let's be the family that we already are in Jesus and be unified in him. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you uh, for uh, tough words, but for good words. Uh, Jesus, thank you that when we are tempted to find other things to uh, identify with and center ourselves on, that you call us back to yourself. And so, Jesus, would you help us to do the hard work uh, of walking in unity together as a church? Jesus, you know this is not easy. But you have said that this is how the world will know that we are your disciples, when we love one another, and when we are one as you are one. And so, Jesus, would you do it in us through your Spirit? Would you give us a spirit of humility towards one another, charity towards one another, curiosity towards one another? Would you let our relationships here in the church be characterized by, by love, by brotherhood and sisterhood? Jesus, please do it in us. We want to walk in this together as a church. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.